Welcome to a new episode of the Superpowered Fancast. This is Darren. One of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is because I get to speak with some of the people I consider the most creative in the entertainment industry. While actors embody characters and bring stories to life and directors create a vision in which the story is ultimately told, writers are the ones who tell the story. They create the characters and the worlds that they inhabit. This week on the podcast, I get to speak with writer David Avaloni. Avaloni is a freelance writer who has worked across the entertainment industry in film and television, including the animated series Bat Wheels for Warner Brothers, and his own podcast series Pulp Today, which is available on Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube. David is also a writer of the Elvira comics for Dynamite Entertainment, including the current Elvira and Monsterland series, which finds the Mistress of the Dark attempting to thwart Vlad the Impaler from building an army of movie monsters. The second issue was released last week, and I recommend picking it up because it's a fun read with great comedy, adventure, and thrills. I got to speak with David about comics, the pulp tradition, and more, so without further delay, here's my interview with David Avalone. Hey. Hey, man. How are you? Gotta verify that's recording this time. So. Yeah, no, no worries. But I, I really appreciate you. Oh, no problem, man. I get it. <laughs> we have we have all we have all been there. Like I said, watch watch any issue, episode of the writer's block and just look for my eyes five minutes in going. <laughs> because I, that's that's me checking the red number to see that it's turning over. I will definitely. Um. Well, I mean, I guess we can just kind of uh, drop right into it. Your mic is sounding a little low. Are you hearing that? Uh, I don't. Um, oh, there we go. Yeah. Okay. You know, I was probably talking about so that's That's on me. Um, okay. So I guess uh, just kind of jump into it. Um, sure. You have a, a, a tradition um, and a, a history, both uh itself and your family in the, in the pulp tradition of, of writing. Um, what elements of the pulp tradition uh, do you bring to your work? And and do you think those, how do you think those elements work? Well, you know, there's the, the, the dictionary definition of pulp is anything uh, printed on cheap paper. But I think that the more colloquial understanding of it is referring to the magazine literature of the 1930s, particularly the genre literature of the 1930s through the 1950s. And what marks those stories, more than anything else, is they were produced on a assembly line. They had to come out. You got you, guy who wrote The Shadow, um, Walter Gibson... I remember, yeah, Walter Gibson, the, the Maxwell Grant was the name they put on them. Same with Kenneth Robeson for Doc Savage was really Lester Dent. Those guys wrote like a 30,000 word novel, novella, every two weeks. That's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that they stuck to, the the and it and it's very much an ethos, you know, my father grew up reading those stories and loving them. And sort of passed that along to me when I was a kid. Um, the only thing you can't be writing pulp is boring. Right. Shit's got to move. Things have got to happen. Raymond Chandler, who is, you know, by some considered a very fine writer and, you know, 
capable of great deal of literary uh, quality. He once said that if you get stuck in a story, and he was talking about mysteries, of course, uh, you just have a character no one has ever met before walk in the room with a gun, <laughs> or you find it, or you find a dead body. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter who the guy with the gun is. But in, you, if you hit a, a roadblock and you don't know what happens next, have someone completely new walk in the room and say, "Everybody, put your hands up." <laughs> you know, or the detective opens a door and there's 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 someone lying on the floor with a with a knife in their back. Instant story, instant adventure, instant action. So I won't say that I fall into that formula, and I'm not. I am not churning out you know thirty forty thousand words a, a month, but there's I definitely inherited from my father the idea that the prime sin mm -hmm. in anything uh, art in any uh, what I call the prop the popular arts is being boring. Right. And the thing is, there are people who think that you can't write about something that's boring without boring the audience. No, no, no. That is not true at all. You can convey boredom to an audience without making them want to kill themselves. That isn't that is not how it works. And I definitely, particularly in, in comics, I got 20 pages to tell a complete story. Now it's a complete story that's part of a serialized thing, but I always want the story in and of itself to be satisfying. Even though you even though there's a cliffhanger, even though you gotta come back next month and read another one. So what I think I get from the pulps is that sense of, and then this happens, and then that happens, and then that happens, and then that happens. And, you know, I will absolutely stop and smell the roses and have a philosophical conversation or a, uh, you know, stop a comedy joke, a comedy, a good line of dialogue that I like. But um, all of that has to happen through action if it's just two people sitting and talking and nothing else is happening at all you've kind of failed because it's especially i mean you know less so in a novel but comics are a, a visual medium movies animation the other stuff i do visual mediums and i wrote something once that was a cross-country romantic comedy and I showed it to my, uh, excuse me, never, movie never got made, but I, I showed it to the cameraman, a guy named Mark Morris, who was probably going to shoot it, a uh, director of photography, a very old, good friend of mine. And he said, it needs a scene where the character decides to go back. And I said, no, there is that scene. There's the scene where the car breaks down and he's sitting in a bar and he meets someone who's going the other way. And he decides that he's going to go with that guy. And then he changes his mind by the end of the scene. And he said, yeah, but I didn't see a guy going back the way he came. I saw a guy sitting in a bar. And I went, that is such an excellent point. And I changed the scene in the script to the car breaks down on the road. He hitches a ride into town to go find a mechanic. So you, the two of them are now in a car pointed in the wrong direction, the opposite direction the hero was going, having the conversation where the guy in the car is like, hey, man, abandoned, like, you don't need to go to New York and see your own girl, your old girlfriend. It's not going to work out. Come to Cal. I'm driving to California. Take the whole trip with me. It'll be great. That as a story point 
works so much better if the hero is in a car going in the opposite direction of New York City. The two guys in the bar, the dialogue's the same. But the audience isn't seeing someone who has changed their mind about going back the way they came. Right. It's in the car seeing something inferred. Yeah. And so also I read an article once about exposition through action and they used as an example um the Empire Strikes Back. And they said there's all sorts of ways to tell the audience that Luke Skywalker is Darth Vader's son. But Lawrence Kasdan does it at the end of a long sword fight when Darth Vader has cut off his hand and he's hanging over a pit. <laughs> that's when you get that information. That's that's when you blow their minds. If Obi-Wan Kenobi is sitting with him in the Moss Eisley Cantina and says, you know, I should probably tell you at this point, um, guy on the Death Star torturing your sister is actually like it's got no power right. in that scene but uh i read a very funny review of empire strikes back the year it came out that literally broke down that last scene with darth that duel with darth vader as a freudian nightmare <laughs> with all of the falling into holes and getting your right hand with your dick in it cut off and all like you know like it was like and then at the end of the nightmare the boogeyman says oh i'm your father Ugh. you know that's he wasn't wrong by the way that's <laughs> That analysis is completely correct. It is a Freudian nightmare, but that's why it's great. That's mm -hmm. why we're still talking about it 30 years later. Right. If it had been, like I said, if it had been Obi-Wan Kenobi taking Luke out for a cup of coffee and saying, hey, I, I, have some, say, I have some really upsetting news to tell you, no one would give a shit. All of which to say, going back to answering your question, is like, yeah, it, the thing I learned from the, the pulps uh, is keep it moving. And, you know, the first movie I ever truly loved was the 1933 King Kong, which is an express train. Yeah. Uh, you know, it it's, I wouldn't even say it's slow. It builds tension while they're on the boat going to Skull Island, but that's mm. like 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> they get to Skull Island and then there is something scary, interesting, beautiful, haunting. Right. There's always something happening. Happening. Like, it's this and then this and then this. And, you know, it always cracked me up that Peter Jackson said that the movie that influenced him the most was King Kong. And I'm mm -hmm. like, dude, King Kong's a hundred minutes long. <laughs> you have learned nothing from King Kong. King Kong is, the mo original movie King Kong is over before we meet King Kong in your King Kong movie. Right. Like, don't, you know, the Lord of the Rings, not known for their economy of storytelling, you know. <laughs> uh, and look, you know, I'm. you want to make a three-hour-long movie, great. But King Kong shouldn't be three hours long. Right. An Indiana Jones movie shouldn't be three hours long. Like, I, Endgame is three hours long. It's got, it's, Endgame is Charles Dickens. It's got 5,000 speaking characters. We've built to it. Endgame earned it. Right, right. Earn those three hours. Totally. Mm -hmm. But don't, you know, but don't tell me you love King Kong, man. Like, you know, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, Star Wars is a solid and righteous, the first one is a solid and righteous two hours before all of the special edition stuff in it. That's it. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good length, man. That's yeah. what the bladder can stand, you know, like. And if you can't keep it under two hours, I want intermissions back. But that's another story entirely. No, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I love big, big epics. But I think especially with a character, like if you're if if it's a movie, like I think it's kind of why I've liked 
but I like some of the the newer Kong and Godzilla movies a little bit better. Like mm-hmm. I think you know the that first new newer Godzilla. I think they did a little too much of trying to you know the father son dynamic with, with Cranston and yeah. but I think when they when they finally just decided it's just going to be monster versus monster. Yeah. Then that's when it kind of that's when well, it, and, and the father son dynamic, man. I am. Movies are about things. Monster movies are not about father-son dynamics. Yeah. Uh, Godzilla movies are about the environment. Mm -hmm. They're about man testing nuclear weapons. They're about the limits of science to solve our problems. They're about a lot of things, metaphorically. Uh, Some in the late 80s, early 90s, Japanese Godzilla movies were about how much America sucks. Valid. Totally valid. Uh, That's why when Roland Emmerich had Godzilla attack New York, I'm like... No, Godzilla is New York, man. Like, don't Godzilla is us. Godzilla doesn't attack us. He attacks Japan. There's a reason for that. Yeah. Um, and it's like Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner. War of the Worlds is about imperialism and colonialism and the shoe being on the other foot. I don't give a shit about divorced dad Tom Cruise. Holy crap! That is H.G. Wells did not care about divor- big divorce dad energy, Tom Cruise. Like, that is not what that story... It's not about parenting, for fuck's sake. Don't take your movie about alien invasions and say, no, really, it's about parenting. No, it's not. It's about how, oh, you're the big industrialized nation that conquers the world. What happens when something shows up bigger than you? What happens when Mars shows up and treats Britain like Africa? that's what the book's about <laughs> you know but steven's got to turn it into a guy who doesn't visit his son enough on weekends it's like i don't i don't think that's a story man so and and that's a you know and that's an important there other people i think express it slightly differently but i always break it down to story and plot plot is the martians invade story is what are you trying to say about the world by telling a story about the Martians invade? What, what's the story? And sometimes you come up with plot first. Sometimes you come up with story first and you sort of back time. The, a lot of times you just come up with an image you think would be cool. And one of the great, wonderful, mystor- mysterious things about writing is when you've got plot and you don't have story. And, and then you start writing the, the plot. You start writing the piece. And then you go... That's what I was writing about. That's what this story is about. You know, uh, you know, I wrote Elvira going to hell uh, in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, five, six, seven, eight. And you kind of you can write a wacky comedy about a comedy character going to hell. Mm -hmm. But you kind of have to have an opinion about the idea that God operates a medieval torture chamber where the punishment is too much and it's too late. You can't you can't redeem yourself. You're just going to be chained. Like, you got to have an opinion about that if you're writing about hell. So I found something to write about hell. I found a great quote from C.S. Lewis that I actually have someone say in the comic, which is, uh, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Yeah. And that's what I wrote about. Yeah, I I I, I, rem- I actually remember that because it had me thinking about um, like Neil Gaiman's Sandman and his his kind of uh, view on uh, Lucifer and hell is like yeah. being hell, you know, basically like they come here, I don't bring them here. Right, right, yeah, that was a great yeah, and they torture you know, themselves because they think they need to. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was built philosophically on that same C.S. Lewis thing and how I, you know, what you do then with Elvira and with the people that she encounters there. Uh, my favorite thing, my favorite addition in the mythology of hell, I don't think anyone's ever done this before, was the observation that uh, demons are stupid. Yeah. Uh, I had her, her, her guide say, well, demons are dangerous, but you got to remember they're really stupid. And she says, why are demons stupid? And she said, and he says, okay, so demons are the thousandth generation removed from the angels who were so fucking stupid that when Lucifer said, I'm going to challenge God, they went, that sounds like a fantastic idea. Right. So, like you take those dudes who thought rebelling against God was smart. And then they've been inbreeding underground for a trillion years so you end up with the dumbest creatures in the universe like yeah they're vicious and they're horrible and they're violent mm -hmm. but they're easily outsmarted because these are the guys who thought rebelling against god was a bright idea <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh and i thought that was a and honestly i you know the great again one of the great things about storytelling that was a solution to the storytelling problem of i didn't want the whole thing story to be about how they avoided being captured by demons right you know what i mean like that's a good adventure movie premise but i didn't i didn't think it was interesting enough to spend a lot of times with them dodging and weaving and fighting guys with pitchforks i was like eh. yeah especially i had to come up with i had to come up with a reason they could easily get past demons when i really needed them to get past it and when i sat down and thought about it i was like well what are demons where do they come from oh right they're the angels that rebelled with lucifer Right, so they're dumb. <laughs> you know, like so they're 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 goo they were goofs a trillion years ago and now they've these are these guys aren't as smart as the guys that thought rebelling against God was smart. And I think honestly that that works so much better in a comedic storyline, especially of course. with a character like Elvira. So I mean yeah. like I mean the fact that you that you have her as kind of the uh know the audience's uh the readers uh, view of the world like um, sure. makes the makes the comedy and the horror work so much better together and the question i was going to ask is like um because you, you're currently working on elvira and monster land yep. and I, I love the storyline i love the storyline because i love uh, i love vladley and Peter coming back and him Thank you. going you after other cinematic draculas which is mm -hmm. <laughs> which is fun to me but um what kind of connects you with Elvira as a character and what about Elvira do you think the reader connects with? Well, you know, I think you always need, especially in something that's fantasy or science fiction or horror, you do need the character that's going to have the reaction that the audience would have. You know, hopefully their reaction is funnier, more interesting, whatever, but um, Elvira to me, the genius of the character she created is that, and I've said this elsewhere, that the the standard for that character, women that look like that in horror, Morticia Adams, Vampira, everyone Barbara Steele played in a, a Hammer movie, there's always sort of this like reserve and allure, and they're they're far, they have some foreign accent or another. And they're languid and they move slowly and they're very dignified. And Elvira looks exactly like those women, 
but has the person she always says it's a valley girl persona based on something that she was doing in groundlings because you know she was a sketch comedy actress in the groundlings but it's also there's to me elvira has the personality of a nightclub comic right you know she's bob hope in one of those Mm -hmm. because they break the fourth wall and all those on the road to morocco on the road to mindanao like there's a lot of like when is Dorothy Lamore showing up in this picture kind of you know jokes, and so that uh, and that goes back to uh, you know someone with someone online was doing a thing where they were talking about I think I saw this on on Twitter someone was saying like you know Lobo was doing the all of the you know Deadpool shit before Deadpool and I was like yeah Groucho Marx was doing it before. Bugs Bunny, who was doing it before Bob Hope, who was doing it before Elvira, who was doing it before Lobo, who was doing it before Dreadpool. Like, get your, you know, get your, get your history straight. It's like Batman, you know, the shadow was Batman before Batman, but Zorro was the shadow before the shadow. And uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel was Zorro before Zorro, you know, like your, your playboy, your masked playboy a crime fighter not a you know not invented by bruce wayne not invented by lamont cranston so it's that groucho marx thing uh and it's also the anarchic groucho marx being a constant outsider and being a constant threat to authority right uh, philip roth wrote a great essay about the marx brothers where he brilliantly uh, compared the three Marx brothers to the Jewish immigrant experience that Harpo is the one who's so fresh off the boat. He doesn't speak the language. So he's silent. Chico speaks it with an incredibly strong accent and they both have the most menial blue collar jobs. And Groucho has, has moved into polite white Protestant society but he's still he has a professional job he's a college professor he's a lawyer but he's still viewed with great suspicion mm-hmm. by the wealthy white folks and by high society and that and bugs bunny is very much a you know a, a influenced by uh, groucho marx so that thing of the jewish nightclub comic the jewish sketch comic uh that's very much the, in the elvira uh tradition it's just the you're used to that person looking like Groucho Marx or Bob Hope, you know, not being a big, busty, gorgeous showgirl. Right. So it's putting that, you know, and, and, and she was a showgirl in Vegas. And that's the genius is in a burlesque show, you've got the the MC and the stand up comic and you've got the showgirls. And the genius is and this goes back to her Vegas days. She did comedy as a showgirl in Vegas. Like they started to write comedy bits for her because she was funny and she could speak. So the Elvira persona is the showgirl who is also the stand-up comic. Right. And that's what I'm writing. The funny, the showgirl who is a sharp-witted, but also as much of an outsider. Just, and, you know, showgirls are essentially treated like sex workers. They are, they are, it is a shameful procession profession to many people. Right. So it's that thing of a person being outside of society, having sympathy for society's outsiders, uh, and you know, and and shaking the system and standing up against the man. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's one of again, it's one of the reasons why I kind of always connected with her as a kid, as a kid, because she was so different than what you were expecting from the way she looks. And, yeah. Um, and she would, and she acknowledged like why you were looking, but she gave you more yeah. of what you were looking at. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. There's never any pretense that she's not a hot chick. Like there, you know, that she knows that's part of the arsenal of weapons, for want of a better word, that she brings to the table. And uh, but you know, it's funny. Like I literally, because of writing her, like I don't even. It, I'm not saying I don't see how beautiful she is and how sexy all the drawings are. It's like, but I sort of, she's so not a figure that's about sex in the comics. Yeah. You know what I mean? The sex appeal is very incidental. Every once in a while, we'll make an obvious joke about it. We'll have a character staring at her. Mm. You know, there's a, you know, there's a big influence in the comics on Mad Magazine. And in Mad Magazine, especially like uh, the the parodies drawn by Dick Departle, uh, uh by uh, Mort Drucker, you'd get like little background gags. And I try to do, you know, sometimes the artists come up with them. Sylvia Califano came up with a number of amazing jokes in the background of Elvira in Horrorland. But like in... Uh, in the second issue, she meets Edgar Allan Poe, and she and Edgar Allan Poe are walking out of a graveyard together. And I said to Dave Acosta, I'd really like a Mort Drucker style background where there's a, you know, 1838 husband and wife walking down the street. And in panel one, he's staring at her and she's looking at her husband. And in panel two, you know, Poe and Elvira have passed by and the wife is just beating the husband over the head with an umbrella, you know, has nothing to do with the plot. I just, I said, I want a little mad magazine moment of like, and also from a storytelling perspective, you have to acknowledge that it's 1838 and she's walking down the street in a slit to her navel, 1960s looking cocktail dress. Right. So like people are going to stare and you got to have that joke. The conversation, the other, another favorite one of mine, in the the conversation about why uh, demons are dumb, in issue six or seven of uh, Masters of the Dark, uh, took place in a level of hell that looked like a shopping mall, right? And there was a fountain of fire instead of a water fountain in the middle of the shopping mall, and I told Dave Acosta again, while they're having this conversation, I want three panels in the background, one where Two, uh, because it's a mall setting, the the demons there are dressed as mall security guards with like dumb rent-a-cop uniforms on. And I said, panel one, I want one of the demons flicking fire at the second demon. Then panel two, I want the second demon flicking fire back at the other guy. And panel three, I want them both on fire laughing their heads off. <laughs> and it just like, you know, this demonstration of that they're idiots. <laughs> Know that they're absolutely clowns setting themselves on fire for laughs, you know, <laughs> putting themselves through unspeakable pain because it's funny. Mm -hmm. uh, I I love that stuff. I've talked about it before, but in in Horrorland, I did not write these at all. In the Alien issue, there's a panel that was just described as you know Elvira is addressing medium on Elvira. She's talking to the crew of the Nostromo, telling them how they're all going to die. And in the background, Sylvia True 
a Pac-Man board <laughs> with little heads of Tom Skerritt and Yafit Koto. And mm -hmm. the Pac-Man is, of course, the alien right. chasing them around. And in that little pen where the dead are, there's like a John Hurt drawing with his eyes X'd out and a Harry Dean Stanton with his eyes X'd out. And uh, in the Psycho issue... There's a panel where she's muttering on she's talking to Norman Bates and she's muttering under her breath about the the showers. And Sylvia found the sheet music from Bernard Herman's musical cue, the the murder. Right. And she put it in the background behind Elvira. <laughs> you know, she was very good on excuse me, finding jokes to add to just like close-ups. And the first time I didn't catch it in the pencils when it came in and I look at every step of the art just so that I can make sure the storytelling is there. I'm not trying to like, excuse me, double check the artist. I just really want to make sure everything is getting expressed. And when I first got that in the pencils, I couldn't really see what she was doing in the background. And when I got the inks, I just kind of looked like, why is there a musical staff behind her? And then I noticed that it was a single high note over the <laughs> over the clef. You know, over the staff, over at the same note, over and over again. I was like, "Well, okay, I know what that's got to be." <laughs> so funny, but yeah. So that I mean, and that's the the dream is to get collaborators who make better jokes than you would have. You right. know, and uh, and along those lines, like, do you have any? I, I mean, I know you're you're working on Elvira and Monster right now, but are you already kind of seeding the next Elvira? Uh, I, you know, I, we've just reached down the point. I'm about to write Monsterland number five. I'm starting to see the art on four. Two comes out June. I don't know, middle of June sometime. Right. Trying to look at my, uh, trying to look at my calendar to see what. I don't know. Maybe the 14th or the 21st. I can't remember which one of those. Uh, Monsterland two drops. Three is all done. I've seen it. Looks great. Four, the art's starting to come in. Looks amazing. Just starting to figure out what I'm writing in number five. Uh, sometimes I do a little bit of a... I write myself into corners so that I can see how I'm going to write myself out of them. Right. I don't really know what happens in five. Like, I wrote four and went, wow, that's a... Put her in a tight spot. I wonder how we're going to get out of this. You know, and I seeded things so that, well, there's some idea. Uh, but I've now been done two series in a row about the multiverse of movies so i'll probably leave that alone next time okay. uh and i might go for something that's more of a sustained parody of a single movie or a single genre or a single but i honestly haven't it's literally i have it on my to-do list to discuss with nikki and with uh with uh with cassandra and with joe ryband the executive editor at nikki's the publisher of uh dynamite what we're going to do next with elvira there is a uh original graphic novel elvira that i've been working on for over a year that's 120 pages and seven <laughs> it's funny to say this 69 of those pages have been drawn uh and a lot of the rest of it is laid out and i'm still trying to uh get that finished um I don't know if we will lay off on the next Elvira series. Mm -hmm. We might just concentrate on getting the graphic novel done and getting that out so that there's not a little too much right. Elvira out there. And I've got some uh, pitches with... they <laughs> Dynamite accepted a, a, a 
uh, Red Sonia pitch from me like a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And we st- just haven't gotten around to doing the series. Uh, and it's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so that's, uh, so that's another thing. But as far as Elvira goes, I don't have an, I have a pile of like one paragraph concepts for other Elvira series to go back to. Um, but uh, I may come up with something new. And, you know, it's like the Vincent Price thing is a perfect, that came out of nowhere. They were like, so we got the license to use Vincent Price. We'd like to do Elvira meets Vincent Price. I'm, tr- I have always been trying to sell DC comics on the idea of Elvira meets Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. I think that would sell a trillion copies and be the funniest fucking thing in the world. Sounds. Uh, I mostly want to do it so that she can call John Constantine Sting every time she sees him. Because uh, I'm from the 80s and I remember yeah. that Bissett and Tottlebin drew Sting when they'd like a really obvious photo reference of Sting every time John Constantine came up. So I and I think, you know, I don't care how old he is. John Constantine should be played by Sting in a DC Comics movie. John Constantine can be a handsome old man. I don't give a shit. He does. He doesn't have to be 35 uh, to be John Constantine. That's unnecessary. So, uh, but yeah, I would love, and it would totally be my tribute to Vertigo to, you know, eighties, eighties, DC comics. It just would have Elvira in it, but yeah, you know, I've got some, I've got some stuff there and I've got stuff coming out from other companies and I've been doing more prose writing these days, which is really fun stuff. There's a, there's a, uh, Kickstarter going on, right? And if you put this out within the next three weeks, it'll still be going on. If you go to Kickstarter, there's something called Dead Detective Society. And I wrote a 7,000-word short story for that uh, about an old public domain character named Nick Carter, who my father rebooted in 1964. And I am rebooting him yet again in 2023. Mm -hmm. Um, Though the story takes place in 1964. Basically, Nick Carter was a 19th century character. Mm -hmm. Predates Sherlock Holmes, the first American action hero character and ran forever the pulp magazines kind of died out in the 50s and in 1964 they asked my father to reboot him as a james bond pastiche and i was asked to do this doc this this uh anthology about dead detectives and i didn't really have anything lying around for it and then i went wait how is the guy in 1964 the same guy from 1890 That could be a that could be a thing where some supernatural undead thing is going. So basically, zombie James Bond is the is the premise, and it's uh it's called uh, Nick Carter recalled to life, and uh, it's a lot. It's it's my entry into writing a mid sixty swinging uh, secret agent with a with a macabre horror element to it. So it's fun. Well, it sounds awesome, and I'm definitely going to put the the Kickstarter information up because I would love to, to read that myself. Um, uh, just to kind of wrap up, and again, thank you for. for oh, my pleasure. Um, I've seen your, I've seen a lot of your posts on on Instagram. More about it, but if you wanted people to follow you on social media. Uh, 
Uh, I have a, I mean, the easiest thing to do is I have a website, um, davidavalonefreelance.com that branches to everything. I have the biggest, of all of the places on the internet you can find me, I have the biggest following on Twitter. And I'm pretty active there. But uh, it's a little, also a little bit of a garbage fire over there on Twitter. So feel free to follow me on Instagram. I kind of make sure that everything that I've got going on is talked about at least a little bit on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I'm on Blue Sky. If anybody's on Blue Sky, I'm on, oh, what's that other one called? Spoutable. Um, we're seeing which gladiator wins that combat. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it's tricky. Yeah, I got 11,300 followers on Twitter. And it's hard to walk away from that for the 300 followers on uh blue sky and the thousand followers on spoutable and you know i think i i feel like i don't have that many followers on instagram oh and i i will say this if you have elvira comics or my comics or both currently we're doing a cgc signing and you have until june 30th to send those comics to cgc go to their website and look up the steps and they will grade it, slab it, and give. They'll grade it, send it to me and Cassandra to sign, encase it in carbonite, and send it back to you for your collection. Uh, and I would love it <laughs> if you uh, sign up for that because right now I, right now I feel like I'm throwing a party and I haven't seen the RSVP list yet. So I hope someone shows up to the party. Well, um, add that link as well. But that's a that's a new that's a new wrinkle for me. And I also just started a whatnot, and I'm probably having my first sale show there in August sometime. Okay. So uh, keeping you, you know, it's it's exhausting, but I don't mind it. In the old days, you would kind of hope your publisher would do PR for you, and they wouldn't, and you'd be very sad. Right. So at least in the 21st century, there are avenues like. 20 years ago, there would have been no way for me to personally reach 11,000 fans. No, like there would have been no way, like literally no way. So the fact that I can have at least that tiny little megaphone uh, and, you know, you grow it as best you can. But yeah, so uh, follow me on the things and I will try to reward you with uh, funny, pithy things and anecdotes and not too many pictures of what I'm eating. <laughs> I got it. Uh, David Avalone, thank you again uh, for being a superpower. Thank you, Darren. It's great to see you. Thank you. I would love to speak to you again sometime. Um, Anytime, man. Just reach out. Right. Absolutely. I will. Uh, thank you again. My pleasure. Once again, I want to thank David Avalone for being on the podcast this week. You can pick up the first two issues of Elvira and Monsterland from Dynamite Entertainment now. David's web series and podcast, Pulp Today, is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Uh, Bat Wheels is currently airing on Cartoon Network and Max. And you can find uh, David Avalone online at DAvalone on Twitter. Um, you can also find him at David underscore Avalone underscore freelance on Instagram. But you can find out more uh, by going to his website, www.davidavalonefreelance.com. Once again, you can find me online at superpoweredfancast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at superpoweredfan. You can find us on Instagram at superpoweredfancast. This is Darren for Superpowered Fancast, signing off. <laughs>